0: morning, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It's John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Hear now God's holy word. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man, and this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, again, thank you for uh, braving uh, the snow and and joining us this morning. I imagine there are many more joining us on the live stream uh, today, but thank you. Uh, Thanks be to God that you are here safely, and we look forward to seeing everybody back in person uh, next week. Well, if you can remember a time when you went in for a job interview For some of you that's been decades, maybe for some of you just last couple months, or perhaps being interviewed for a college or university. I know some of you are thinking about that. And then afterward you realize even though I spent an hour, maybe for some of you two hours with them, they really have no idea about who I really am. They're going to grant me this job or they're going to recommend my entrance into this particular school based on very, very limited knowledge of who I really am. But we all know that's the way things work in this world. Sometimes huge amount of money is agreed upon in business without really understanding who you're dealing with. Now, of course, there is precedent, there's someone's reputation to go off of, a record of trustworthiness, so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, we kind of go into major decisions somewhat blindly. Those of you who are married, perhaps you were like my friend who recently proposed to his girlfriend. Well, months before this, he approached her father and asked for his permission. And my friend said the conversation was awkward, it was quiet, but the father readily agreed with his plan. But did he really know my friend in a very detailed way? No. Probably not. It was probably just going off of his daughter's report of who he is. Perhaps, as a friend, I should call this father and give him my two cents. (laughs) The point is, we are finite beings. We can't know the inward thoughts and motives of other people as hard as we may try. And so this could be problematic because we can be way too trusting of others. Some of us have been burned in this way because we live in a sinful world with sinful people. That can get us into some deep trouble if we're not more careful. Well, today we are juxtaposed, mankind is juxtaposed, to the all powerful and omniscient one, the all knowing one, Jesus the Christ, who sees all things and knows all things, even the inner parts of our heart. And we conclude chapter two, book ended with talks of signs and miracles. If you have your whole Bibles in front of you, you could look from chapter two, verse one, all the way to the end here today. If you remember in the last several weeks, the beginning of the chapter, we find the miracle in Cana. Jesus turning water into wine. It said at the end of that narrative that the quote-unquote disciples believed in Jesus. Then, if you remember several weeks ago, we had the narrative of the temple when Passover was upon them in Jerusalem. The people demanded more signs to verify, are you our long-awaited Messiah? That geopolitical type of Messiah. But he would do no such thing other than clear out the money swindlers in righteous indignation. And then we come today, today's book bookend for chapter two. We'll see in verse 23, more signs were actually shown, miracles, more believe, quote unquote, but we find out rather quickly that not all those, quote unquote, believe are truly born again because only God himself can determine what's truly in the heart. Even John the Apostle witnessing this might have perhaps even assumed that many of them genuinely believe he's just reporting on what was happening. But is that what happened in the inner depths? And so if you're tracking along in today's very short passage, I'm going to have three main headings that help us along, and I'll repeat them as we go along. But the first heading is the marvel of Christ. Number two, the entrusting of Christ. And then finally, number three, the knowledge. Of Christ. So let's go to verse 23 again, the marvel of Christ. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. We find out at the end of the gospel that John did not record every last miracle. I think it's in John chapter 20 that there were many other things that Jesus did that we we're not writing about. Uh, he, so he didn't note every miracle and last sign that he performed. And so we see that Jesus did perform more miracles at the Passover festival. And obviously some onlookers marveled at these things. And today, many are familiar with the comic, some of you more than others familiar with the comic book, uh, that that movie making spectacular of the brand Marvel, where somehow they come out with a movie every month. And I I personally made a decision, I'm done with whatever phase this is, I'm done, I'm never gonna watch another, and then somehow, oh, next Friday, and I'm like, oh, maybe I should go to that one. But it's just that whole social phenomenon that we live in today. But what does the word marvel mean? Synonyms for marvel include wonder, genius, miracle, or spectacle. Again, 2,000 years ago, at this time of the Passover, some onlookers must have been mesmerized with some of his miracles. and Wouldn't we all be mesmerized? And interesting, the Apostle John said, some quote-unquote, believed in him, in his name, because of these miracles. If this was written in modern times, perhaps there would be quotes around the word believed. Because clearly John then explains that not all that is outwardly seen is matched inwardly. But at this point, much, if not all, of their faith is based on what? Sight and seeing. And as we all become more experienced Bible readers in the Christian walk, we are taught and understand that not every word used in one instance means exactly the same somewhere else, maybe even in the same chapter. And often word occurrences do help us interpret scriptures, but we have to be careful not to assume John meant that all those onlookers became genuine believers at this point because of these miracles. Added to the complexity here is that we're just a chapter away from the most famous of all verses, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But what kind of quote-unquote <clears throat> believing was meant here by John in chapter 2, verse 23? Because it's not hard to imagine that people can become so enamored at a spectacle, at some marvel, only to see that attraction dissipate. And then what happens? They they move on, yes, to the next thing. Let me just give you a little bit of historical context. Back in the ancient time when this was written, believing in someone's name meant I'm accepting someone's character. One uh, commentator notes, I'm accepting the activity and place in God's purpose. That is what it meant to actually believe in him, to believe in his name, not just mere outward things, but the work, the activity in the person of Jesus Christ. But will these onlookers then believe in this miracle worker when he says, actually, my greatest sign will be to die, to die on a cross, to be buried, and then raised again to life? No. The answer is absolutely not. Many will abandon that type of thinking. You see, the marvel of Jesus and his validating miracles were not the problem. The problem was in the shallow hearts of man. We see that in Jesus' parable of the seed, or some call the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4 where he examines the four different soils that represent the variety of ways some people get initially excited to hear about the gospel, but that oftentimes the gospel never then takes root in their hearts and they go away. You see, the parable was saying God has to make the soil, the heart, right before anyone can truly believe. And so is this only a superficial quote-unquote believing here? With these onlookers. Well let's keep looking. Look at verse 24. We see the the marvel of Jesus now number two, the entrusting of Jesus. Verse 24, I'll just read uh, this verse, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Theologians note that the way the Greek is structured here in this passage uh, it was just really just kind of a, a tit for tat. People supposedly believe in Jesus, but he in turn did not entrust, which actually literally means believed in them, as in he knew man's belief could be shallow because he knew he knew intimately all people. The great reformer John Calvin in the fifteen hundreds wrote that it appears that their faith was not genuine, true, and genuine because Christ excludes them from the number of those on whose sentiments reliance might be placed. He says, besides, that faith depended solely on miracles and had no root in the gospel and therefore could not be steady or permanent. And so what about the role of miracles? Well, Calvin goes on to say miracles do indeed assist the children of God in arriving at the truth. But listen carefully to this. But it does not amount to actual believing when they admire the power of God so as to merely believe that it is true, but not to subject themselves wholly to it. And therefore, when we speak generally about faith, let us know that there is a kind of faith which is perceived by the understanding only and afterwards quickly disappears because it is not fixed in the heart. He was writing this you know, 500, 600 years ago how relevant that is for us today, for the church today. Because the Bible says even the demons acknowledge, perhaps even the demons would marvel of Jesus' earthly ministry and his work, but did they believe in him? Did they entrust themselves him did these onlookers only quote unquote believe because they admire the power of God if we see it if we saw it right in front of our eyes we would marvel but does that mean we then subject ourselves to the person and finished work of Jesus Christ And so what a helpful summation about the context of genuine verse imitation faith. I'm not talking about weak or strong genuine faith. I'm talking about genuine faith versus an imitation version. Because this happens all the time, friends. And we cannot be naive to think this doesn't happen at Westminster either. Every church encounters this dilemma from the inauguration of the church itself all the way until Jesus returns. There will be people that believe, quote unquote, on the outside only And those that believe in the heart because God has so regenerated their hearts to actually believe. And if I may humbly say this past week, I shudder to think as an under-shepherd to Jesus Christ here at Westminster, how many uh, souls here or watching uh, that I assume believe that actually do not truly entrust themselves to Christ. I actually shudder in my soul thinking about that. And so that's why I or we must all continually pray for those sitting around us. And so if Jesus would not entrust himself to these quote unquote believers, to whom then did he entrust himself to? Well, Jesus only entrusted himself to the Father. You don't have to turn there and we're gonna to get to this months later, Lord willing, but John chapter six, thirty-seven 37 through 38, he says, the word says, all that the Father, Jesus says, all the, that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus, after his resurrection, then also makes this reassuring commitment at the very end of Matthew's gospel to his church, to those that truly believe. Matthew 28:20, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's not entrusting himself to just people that are applauding and saying, what a great show. But he's entrusting himself to the father and to the father's will but also to the church to those who truly believe in the person and the work of jesus christ but returning back to today's passage and jesus's wariness of man's heart we come to our last verse today and to our final heading we went over the marvel of christ the entrusting of christ and the final heading now the knowledge of christ continuing from verse 24 to 25 because he knew all people And needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man so piggybacking off of that beginning portion in verse uh, 24 to 25 john says that jesus knew all people and knew what was in mankind men and women you see people need jesus but jesus does not need man it's not as if he needed mankind to verify and to applaud and validate Oh, you are the Messiah. He already was. He didn't need their approval or acceptance for then the Father to look down from heaven and say, Okay, Jesus, you passed. You are the Messiah. You actually arrived to that place. And some people actually believe that. That Jesus' divinity wasn't placed on him until he actually fulfilled A, B, and C. No, Jesus was God from the very, very beginning. He didn't need anyone's applause or Uh, acknowledgement or validation or verification and he certainly didn't need anyone to tell him about the condition of man's heart he knew the depths of it but he also knew the corruption and nature of everyone in mankind's heart you don't have to turn there but jeremiah 17 9 a well-known verse the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it Many of us can remember what was written in Romans 3 10 through 18. I'm gonna read that really quickly, and it was part of it was quoted earlier today in the Psalms, where Paul writes, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. At our natural uh, ground zero state, you and I, this is the description of us. Jesus does not entrust himself to the onlookers, even those mesmerized by his signs, because he knows the heart of men and left and left at their natural state, they are not to be trusted. And so one scholar noted that some of these clamoring for him, Ooh, look, look at all these signs and miracles and Passover feasts, were probably the ones later shouting, crucify, crucify him. Jesus had knowledge of who we truly are. Going back to our sermon on the depravity of man on Reformation Sunday, our hearts are blackened and every last category of our being is tainted with sin. There is nothing in us that would want to cry out for God unless God intervened in the heart first. You see, Jesus' knowledge of all things is characteristic not of his humanity but of his divinity. We believe that he is truly Man, but also truly God. Again, John Calvin notes, quote, there is a wide difference between him and us. For Christ knew the very roots of the trees. But except from the fruits which appear outwardly, we cannot discover what is the nature of any one tree. We could see the fruits. We could see the consequences of a regenerated heart, a saved soul. We could see the fruits, but we cannot see the roots. We could not see the depths of anyone's heart. But Calvin also later knows that we should not be the ones to judge others and say, oh, because I have this certain amount of discernment and gifting, I know that this person is saved and I know that person is not truly saved. No, none of us can see the roots. I think months ago, the long-term pastor at College Church in Wheaton, Kent Hughes, I mentioned this, that he says, it takes me about seven years to finally understand a congregant. And he wasn't saying all knowing, but he's like, I really don't get to know a congregant until after seven years of doing ministry with them. And I think we can all agree, maybe that's even a stretch too. And of course he's not saying that he is God, but it takes someone seven years to just know even just the foundational bits, but we only, only God knows what is his, in the core and in the depths. I've known people in church context for over 10 years and I'd be naive to to say, oh, I know everything about them. There are still mysteries, even in the closest of my friends in sharing church life together, deep down, only things God knows. How well do you really know your family? That's a rhetorical question, okay? You can email me later if you're really contemplating this this week. But how well do you know your family members? Of course, you know them way more than others, but there's still an incompleteness, right? I am so close with my family. I just, you know, thanks be to God, went for a successful visit to them this past week. But there is an incompleteness. We're not all knowing. There are bits of the hidden heart that only God knows. Have you ever thought you knew someone so well? And you trusted them to a major, major extent in your life, only to be shocked, only to be stunned at what you found out later about him or her. Of course, that's happened to almost everyone here. And this is not because this person versus that person is better than the other. We are all finite beings, and we can't know all the details of the heart. And yes, we are all sinners. But Jesus knew and Jesus knows the inward heart, and this matches what is said of God himself, because Jesus is God, one of the big critical points of the Gospel of John. We see this through the scriptures, 1 Samuel sixteen seven. but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature. He's talking about David. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have uh, um, uh, in the context of talking about Saul and, and, and David, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, it says there, looks on the heart. Acts 15:8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. Romans 8:27. And He. God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thanks be to God that he knows all things, that this is true, or else we should most definitely have doubts about all things if even God didn't know everything about everything, but he does. And so as we go to our short application and then conclusion, let me share one theologian's thought on what was happening here with these people that quote-unquote believed and he says, to believe in Jesus means not only to acknowledge his ability to perform miracles, but also to accept what those miracles as signs reveal about his per- person and work, Close quote. This is the whole and the heart of the matter. The signs aid us to a point to believe not in just a miracle worker but to the perfect finished work of Jesus, the Christ, his person and work. And that's why he said, I'm only going to give you one real true sign and that's the sign of Jonah into the belly of the well, meaning his death and then for three days dead, buried, but then raised again to victorious life. It's not just a sign but entrusting yourself to the person and work. And so if you're taking notes, there's just three quick application statements for us to leave with all, you know, starting off with an imperative. Entrust is number one. Entrust yourself to him, not in a makeshift or counterfeit or a make-believe faith, but in a true faith. Entrust yourself to him in true, genuine faith, not just by sight, Not just by God, I will believe in you if you do A, B, and C for me. But simply believing in what the Bible says about him and his finished work. Entrusting does not mean intellectually only adhering to whatever we preach about. But do you actually believe? So entrust yourself to him. Number two is humbly admit, humbly admit your depravity and sin before him. Because God knows everything about you. There's nothing we can hide. You can hide so much from a potential employer. You can hide so much from a potential university or college you're going to get to. You're going to hide so much to someone that you're thinking about dating, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's nothing we can hide. There's nothing we can trick or deceive God with. So why don't you just humbly admit the utter need for forgiveness before an all-powerful and all-knowing God, perhaps those onlookers 2,000 years ago were cheering, were clapping their hands, were knowing that, oh, I would never believe in this guy unless he did just that. Oh, no, even Jesus knew the hearts, even in real time. We saw that with the Pharisees. Jesus knew in real time what they were thinking, what they were uh, planning against him. He knows all things. So uh, humbly admit your depravity and sin before. Number three and final is find comfort in Christ's sovereign knowledge through the gift of saving faith. We had a wonderful sermon last week in finding comfort in God through the Psalms. Find comfort in Christ's sovereign knowledge through the gift of saving faith. Because he knows you. He knew you from before the world began. He knows you intimately forever. And so if you lack any comfort in this world, and I know we chase after temporary comforts all the time, but if you lack any comfort in this world, it's because you need to find the ultimate comfort in being known and saved by God himself. And so friends, are we bringing shallow, show me this or that and I'll believe in you type of faith? Or do we have grace-derived, grace-driven Oh, I believe, oh God, even if I don't see. That doesn't mean we have perfect faith. We relate to the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. There are struggles and we are, yes, indeed, weak. But that's totally different from a shallow, show me type of quote unquote faith or belief. And we can maybe sneer at the people 2,000 years ago. Oh, but this is so, this is such a temptation for you and for me so I'll conclude by just saying this. That, you know, the concern for today's church, and there are many concerns that we should always be wary of. The concern for today's church is that so many churches and preachers are prone to say some verbatim that I just don't want to talk about sin anymore or how hearts are full of sin. And they may say their purpose every Sunday is to simply encourage and motivate to quote-unquote, be a better Christian or a better person. Oh, let's not discourage them with any type of talk of sin or shedding of blood, et cetera, et cetera, something along those lines. What happens when we do that? That, of course, creates a dangerous environment of give-me-something-God type of faith. And as soon as someone who thinks like this is somehow, quote-unquote, let down by God, And I know many of us here can say, oh, there was a time where I did feel that in my soul. But as soon as someone who thinks like that, somehow, that is somehow let down by God, they are off to abandoning their faith and onto potentially other solutions. You see, the whole point of the Gospel of John is, behold, the Lamb of God has come whether he fits your erroneous expectations or not, and even the disciples struggled with this, you need to believe in the actual one true Lamb of God and actually why he has come to this earth, his finished work, again, his person and in his work. And so, church, we need to turn to him with all our sin, repent and believe, realizing he is the only remedy for your depravity, and that, quite frankly, is not happening at a lot of churches there is no solution needed. It's just how are you going to live a better, happier life? And to those that just want a self-help gospel, you go to church with your half-baked New Year's resolutions and realize very quickly how insufficient your efforts are to mitigate the sin disease in you. But to those that don't want to discourage people in talking about our sin, Rob, maybe just Easter, maybe just you know Christmas Eve, but do we have to do that every Sunday? And yes, because... The real encouragement, if we're talking about encouragement, the real encouragement is actually pointing people to the solution, not to a band-aid type of self-help. I'm not afraid to admit before you, I have sinned much in my life. I could say, along with Paul, I'm the chief of all sinners. If I have been given the sight to see how sinful I am, would I then just want to ask God for a Band-Aid? A temporary, just get me through this month, get me through this year, just give me enough spiritual talk to put a big old Band-Aid on my sinful disease. Is that encouraging? No, I know it's gonna rip off. I know it's not gonna do the job. I know that it's only temporary. That actually brings discouragement but rather the true redeeming remedy of the blood of Christ. We preach Christ crucified here, not mere outward fixes or resolutions. You see, the, uh, the onlookers at this point in Jesus' day were only looking for, for performative marvels when truly he had come to die and save sinners. And so perhaps you've heard this before, perhaps for the first time, we look to the real Christ, friends. We look to the real Christ, not a quick fix, show me this or that type of savior, but the real solution and be saved. And I'll just end with this one quote, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to save the people he knew so well. People like us in all our our wickedness and sin, that's what grace is. Not that, of course I saved Robin because he's doing so much good and A, B, and C. No, the marvel of the gospel is that he saved me even in my wretched sin. There's a comfort to know he knows me so well, but it is also just jarring to know that he knows me so well, yet willingly died on the cross to save me. If we ever think about amazing grace, think on such things. And in your soul praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh Heavenly Father we do acknowledge the character of you, the character of the Trinity, the Godhead three in one, all same substance, all same essence, yet three distinct persons, and that we learned a little bit more about the second person, O oh, our Savior, the son of God, the lamb of God, that he is omniscient and all powerful, that he knows all things, every wicked thought, every disease pattern, every false belief, every attempts at a counterfeit believing, but he also knows the heart that has been regenerated cleansed and raised up to new life. And so we thank you, we find comfort in that, oh God, in his sovereign care that even despite knowing us so well that he chose to willingly die for us. May that well up in our soul, a fountain of gratitude and thanksgiving. Thank you for knowing us, but also saving us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.